Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma Homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Sadanto Suchedo Ye Ola Hudi San Miao San Putoshi Sadanto the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand billion eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, Dharma friends, welcome to our Sutra Lecture tonight. It's uh, Saturday night, April 30th, here in Berkeley, California, and we're going to continue to look into the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Ten Grounds chapter. Um, we're going to need the songbooks, uh, and songbooks are back underneath the uh, Guanyin Bodhisattva altar, and if somebody wouldn't mind kindly passing out the songbooks would be terrific. At the same time, we're going to chant the name of the sutra and the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Can you hear me in the back, David? The voice good enough in the back? Loud? Okay, great. The sutra title is here on the front cover of your text. And let's uh, join me, please. Put your palms together and invoke the assembly of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Namo
Please turn in your text to page 24 and 25. Welcome anybody who is joining us online tonight from wherever you might be around the planet. We've got, uh, we have had folks from, there. by the way, there are seats in front if anybody's bold enough to grab them. Um, we've had people tune in from uh, Melbourne, Australia, from uh, Beijing, from uh, Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, Florida. We used to have a family from uh, Germany who would regularly tune in, and all over the states and Canada. So, also from uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. And as far away as El Cerrito, people who didn't want to turn that engine over tonight. So. The paragraph we're going to look at tonight, we've actually started. We uh, chanted it last time, and it's a long paragraph. We only did a couple lines of it, so there's a lot more to go. So I think we'll start over again at the top, and, and uh, it's a long a long paragraph. We'll, we will finish it tonight. Um, and it has the same pattern as the others, which is uh, Bodhisattva's kind of giving us a sad story of, of the real state of living beings and then finishes by being moved himself, herself, by that state to say, I need to do something about the existential reality of living beings. How they are is sad and I'm going to try my best to make things better. All right, so we're starting on 24, and it says, Yo zuo shi nian yi qie zhong sheng wei da pu shui. Right there, all right? Yo zuo shi nian yi qie zhong sheng wei da pu shui. Bolang 
Okay, we'll stop there and move over to the English. He further makes the following reflections. All living beings are swallowed up in the great torrent's waves. They enter the flow of desire, the flow of existence, the flow of ignorance, and the flow of views. They revolve in the wheel per, wheel pool. I'm sorry. They revolve in the whirlpool of birth and death. They toss and turn in the river of love. They're carried away by the flood, and have no leisure to contemplate. Okay. Um, this side of the room is really full. Folks are welcome to come on down and just. Add to the line if you want. Grab a cushion, and we have a seat. Uh, in fact, a couple empty seats, more than a couple empty seats in the second row. Please jump right in there. Um, Kenny, could we up the volume just a little? This is too quiet for me. Just a notch, so it's a little louder. The mic line. All right. Um, Let's look at the text, make sure we got the words right, and then come back in the same text and see if we get the meaning right. The bodhisattva, and it could be a male, could be a female. This is gender non-specific language. Um, again, thinks, comma, right? This is the bodhisattvas. We're looking into the mind of the bodhisattva. The bodhisattva thinks, and it's the yo is the first word, meaning this is a a pattern. The sutra gives us ten thoughts. We get right into the mind of the bodhisattva. Zuo Shunyan makes this thought. The bodhisattva thinks, and in, if you look at the Chinese, that you see four characters, Yo Zuo Shunyan. Then there's that funny quote mark. That's a, it looks like a, a bit of cor- cornice molding of the edge of your room. And it's a, that's a quote. It's a quote mark. Yi chie chung sheng, it always begins that way. One cut living beings, multitude born. In other words, every living being. And the living beings include humans and non-humans alike, all species, all beings with con- consciousness, with bread, <laughs> with bread. That's Bread is a combination of bluff. <laughs> I did it twice. Blood and breath. Try to say blood and breath, and you come out with bread and bluff. Wrong. (laughs) All living beings with bread and bluff are in trouble. Okay. That doesn't include us. My bread and bluff is not the way it used to be. So, blood, breath, consciousness, and warmth are the criteria for what makes living beings. If you lack any one of those, you're not what the Buddha meant when he said living beings. So that does include us. We have warmth. As soon as we die, it gets cold. We have consciousness. We're aware of sensation, for example, sound. That's consciousness. Um, Blood courses through and breath. When you lose any one of those, you stop being a, a living being. So, of course, that includes all kinds of bodies. Big, furry bodies and 
tiny winged bodies, and bodies with scales, and bodies with fins, bodies with feathers on, bodies with this very dysfunctional human skin, right? A little too chilly, you've got to add some layers. Too hot, you've got to take layers off. This, we're uh, not very functional as we evolved. So those are living beings. All living beings entirely, says the Buddha, by big um, rushing water. That's the same word as bao, when you take the, the water away from it, and that bao means violent. Big violent floods. Wolang, waves, so more. Drowned. Are sunk. More is like so all living beings are sunk by the waves of the big rushing torrent. Is, is that dramatic? From the Buddhist point of view, no, that's authentic. That's actual. That's the way it really is. And um, I promise we're going to look at the text first and come back before we interpret it. So let's do that. Before I put a comment in there, let's get the whole picture to see if we can figure out what it's saying, then come back and see if we can figure out what it means. So, all living beings are more. They're sunk. They're drowning in the waves of the big rushing water. Then, um, it's a pattern here. Rule. They enter meaning they, they're surrounded by, by their own motivation. They go into yu liu, you liu, wu ming liu, jian liu. Four kinds of liu, and liu is, when it's an adjective, it means flowing, like this. When it's a noun, it means a river. A... a um, what are all the words we can use for a river? We have uh, a creek, a freshet, a stream, a river, a torrent, a flood. All those words we use to talk about water that moves across the land. So there are four kinds here. And this is, sure enough, this is a Buddhist list. Um, this is what you call a technical term. And <clears throat> there are four kinds. Desire, existence, ignorance, and viewpoints, points of view, ways you see things. They're called flows, they're called rivers, because they move unceasingly over the land. Notice that, in this case, desire, existence, ignorance, and viewpoints are all im material thing. You can't grab a viewpoint. Show me your desires. They're invisible. They don't have any weight. They don't have any color. They don't have any velocity. But they determine our lives without mistake. Absolutely. We are made up of our desires, our existence and clinging to it, our fear of letting it go, our ignorance, our inability to see things clearly because it's dark. Ignorance is wu, ming, no light. And our points of view. 
They don't weigh a gram or an ounce, and yet they totally determine how we pass our days and nights. Those four things. The Buddha says they're rivers. They're flowing without cease. When does the river stop? Only when it dries up. Otherwise, it's moving. So, he says, we enter those. We go into those four rivers. Furthermore, he says, Sheng Si Hui Fu, birth and death whirlpool. Whirlpool is a spinning circle of water that is very hard to leave once you get pulled into it. And the Buddha says, birth and death, samsara, coming into being, passing away, coming into being, passing away is like a whirlpool. We get into it, we can't get out of it. You can't, to cut across a whirlpool, you have to be a very strong swimmer. Anybody ever been in a whirlpool? Caught in one? In a boat? Without a boat? In a raft? Scary. If you get into a whirlpool, you, you follow the water. It's powerful. It goes like that. River love, love river. He is the actual word that almost always translates as river. There's also Jiang in Chinese, like the Yangtze River is called the Changjiang, the long river. Huanghe, the yellow river, is called a He. One is a Jiang, one is a He. They're both rivers. So the river of love, Piao Zhuan, we float in it. We float in it, toss and turn. Piao Zhuan. Zhuan means to turn. Zhuan, you turn around. And Piao means you float up and float down. So we're going, we're bobbing and sinking in the river of love. Tuan Chi Ban Ji. Furthermore, Tuan Chi means to run, to be chased. Ban Ji. To run and hurry, to gallop um, by the flood. Tuan, again, has a water radical, so it's like a flood. We're galloping along in a flood. Bu xia guan cha, no time to check what's happening. No time to like look around and go, oh, did you notice that we're being washed away by a flood? Ah, that's right. What should we do about it? You don't have time to do that because you're drowning. The water is banging you against the rocks. You're moving fast downstream. Wow. Okay, just even talk about it. I'm, I'm exhausted thinking about that. There's definitely a feeling of helplessness in what the Buddha is describing. He says all living beings are right there. Okay, so that's what it says. Let's take a look at what what it could mean. This is all um, metaphor language. The Buddha is giving us pictures to describe something that um, he says is reality. He, um, in, our, in our text, if you've been following along, We've um, been on this now for three or four weeks where the Buddha is just telling us this horrible stuff about ourselves, what's really going on with our state. The Bodhis- it's in the mind of the Bodhisattva, as he looks at us, he goes, 
Big trouble. Big trouble. They're living beings are in trouble. They're in danger. And he um, ends every one of these reflections with a resolve. And the resolve is, because of the trouble they're in, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to um, save them, basically. This is superhero talk. This, this is really the, the, uh, the thoughts of a superhero. It's um, the Bodhisattva could just go, you know, and therefore I'm going on vacation because all living beings are they're in the flood. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, he doesn't do that. She doesn't do that. She rallies every time and has this um, inspiration to, to make a difference. And that's, that's what a bodhisattva is about. Um, <clears throat> as I was looking at this, planning what I was going to say tonight, the first thing that came to mind was the, the Japanese military last week made one more attempt um, to find any survivors of the tsunami that hit northeastern Japan. And we've been hearing the the statistics coming out of Japan, you know, 450,000 people in shelters um, uh, very quickly, you know, half a million people under under in, in high school classrooms and in under tents and things like that. And then all the people for how many miles around the the nuclear reactor, Fukushima Daiichi, has to be evacuated, you know, ten miles and then twenty five miles. So all those folks are away from home. And getting these statistics and trying to contemplate the number of people who have to you know, who are not using their own teacups at night. They're not using their own chopsticks. They're dependent upon food that comes out of cardboard boxes because it's been delivered from relief organizations, Siji among others. They, uh, when they go to sleep, they're using blankets that have a, somebody's logo donated by the Chinese People's Republic or Denmark or, you know, uh, Taiwan. And... That's their reality, is being refugees. And then there's that statistic that keeps coming up, and you keep hoping it's going to go down, and it didn't go down. They said there are 28,000 people unaccounted for. You think 28,000, how many families does that count out to? Of those 28,000, is that 20,000 families, if you give more than one person per family, where are those people? Where are 28,000 missing people who all have relatives who, whose first thought in the morning is of their missing relative and whose last thought at night is of their missing relative? And I would watch these statistics and think, how come they can't find them? You know, whenever it's an earthquake in Turkey or Iran or... Or Kashmir, they they just dig up the people, you know, Haiti. Well, this last push, um, after they basically say, 
we're, we're done looking, they're gone. They said those 28,000 people, by and large, were washed out to sea. The sea ate them. You go, oh, that's why they can't find them. It's because the waters came on shore and then went back out. And everybody in the path who wasn't caught in debris uh, was taken back, taken back out. And that's why they're, they're unaccounted for still. And then the last, uh, kind of the last report, notice how the, um, the tsunami has been knocked out of the news. Anybody read any tsunami news in the last week or two? No, it's not, not news now. Um, we have more things to focus on in Alabama, closer to home. Um, but the last thing that I saw was 49 days have passed and they called in the monks. There aren't any monks, they called in the Buddhists, the priests. The, the Buddhists did the services for the families and the survivors and for the kind of the consciousness of the nation. And this is a story within a story. I don't know how tuned in you are to Buddhism in Japan, but it's not doing very well. There's serious concern about the future of Buddhism in Japan because the Buddhists aren't making any money. The way it goes, that's what it comes down to. And what that means is Japan... um, had this emperor called the Meiji Emperor, and he was very upset with how big Buddhism had gotten in Japan. The monasteries were too rich and too big. There was too much gold in the images, too much land, not paying taxes. And the Sangha was too big. There were too many men who could be soldiers in monks' robes. So the Meiji Emperor, for various reasons, cracked down, sent all the monks home, and confiscated a lot of the monasteries. What did he do? He forced the monks to get married and to go back to eating meat and drinking alcohol. He broke their precepts, basically, and said, if you ordain, you have to ordain as a married person. And... There were reasons for it, historical reasons, you know, and you can't, he was not evil for an emperor, he was doing politics, he had to do it. But he, but Buddhism in Japan never recovered. The monastic celibate sangha never came back. Very few real monks or nuns in Japan. Lots of married priests. And So Buddhism continued, but one of the effective ways he stopped it was he turned over ownership of temples to private families instead of having them owned by what's called the Sanbao, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. They were owned by families. 
And so temples would pass on to the descendants. And this would be the, uh, the Ogawa family would own this big temple. And depending on how many sons he had, of course it's men, of course, he would pass over the ownership of the temple. The next priest would be Ogawa Jr. And then Ogawa III and on down that they would own the temple. So whenever you needed the monks, the, the non-monk priests, married priests to come, usually it was when somebody died. Somebody dies, you go to the temple and deal with the Ogawa family, and there are certain things you do. Within seven days, you have to do a certain number of things. Within 49 days, you have to do a certain number of things. Within one year, you have to do a memory ceremony. Within seven years, you do a memory ceremony. Even goes um, longer, 10 years. And So if you're a Japanese family and you can afford it, you have an altar at home with the, fa- the picture of your deceased on the altar. And the right thing to do is to keep the ceremonies going. And every time you call the priests in and they do it. And Buddhists pretty much become funeral caretakers. When do you see the Buddhists? When somebody's dead. And, of course, that gives a really funny kind of, when you see a monk, you go, Omitofo! <laughs> Not like, Omitofo, Fashi, it's Omitofo, meaning, Amitabha, protect me, here comes the monk. You know, it's like, <laughs> get away, because nobody died, right? Right? Like that, seriously. And so, the Sangha became caretakers of the dead. And the families, and you, they chant. They chant ceremonies, sutras to help the dead. And mind you, that's okay. Better they do that than nobody does it. Somebody's got to do it. So that is pretty much what happened to Buddhism in the 20th century, um, that they became, that the monasteries were owned by individual families. And often, what happens? So you have a kid, you're the, you would put on your robes for funerals, and you're, you're the one who signs the checks and, and keeps the grass cut and then the sand garden raked and keeps the tickets of the tourists and all. What about if your son doesn't want to become a temple manager or funeral director? You got a son, but he is not interested. What happens? Big trouble. Family temple becomes like Buckingham Palace with no prince. Right? No royal wedding. What do you do? Trouble. So, Buddhism has been shrinking in Japan because... Younger generation has grown up. They've gone to Tokyo University, Kyoto University. They've gone to UC Berkeley. They've gone to Harvard. And they don't want to go back and put on the robe and chant, when somebody dies. They have a little more ambition. What happens? Crisis. Big crisis. So not enough young people, like religions everywhere, 
and no real reason to kind of keep it going because there's no dharma there. So what has happened recently is, this is, a huge, this is written up in the Wall Street Journal, believe it or not. My mom clips out anything in the Wall Street Journal that has to do with Buddhism and mails it to me, right? <laughs> Thank you, Mom. You know. The story is what? The story is Buddhism vanishing in Japan, Japanese families increasingly going to mortuaries, not calling on the Buddhists at all. Buddhism has become unprofitable, that is to say, unsustainable, because their cai lu, their income stream, which was almost entirely based on doing funerals at the temples, has moved to mortuaries. People call, you know, forest lawn. They don't call daitokuji. So there's no more money in doing funerals for the Buddhists. Big trouble. Big trouble. Crisis in Japan. So not only are the young people like, I don't think I'm interested in that. Now they're really not interested in that because they still have to keep up the old crumbling temple, but there's no more funeral money coming. So what do you do? Here's the pictures after the last military push to find the survivors or the bodies after the tsunami. Out come the Buddhists to chant for the missing 28,000 people who got eaten by the ocean. And there are the Buddhists. And it was really poignant to see Japan go, what do we do in a time of huge grief and suffering? Let's find something we know and believe in. What about Buddhism? Let's call the Buddhists because that's our last line of defense. That's our last hope. And so out come the Buddhists, who have not been on display for a long time. And they're really old. There aren't any young ones. You know. So very interesting huh? how you kind of, what do you depend upon when the time comes? Where do you go for refuge? Where is your safe refuge? Question. Basically, the question is, what do you believe? And money won't help you when the tsunami washes away everything under three stories. Right? You don't say, I'd like to buy off my... (laughs) Please don't wash, you know. Can I pay you and not wash my house away? No. What do you believe? That's what it comes down to. So, interesting to see those pictures of the Buddhists coming out to light incense and go, all right, everybody. It goes, Namo Amida Butsu. Can you all say that, everybody? And they go, I think I have Namo Amida Butsu. Yeah, say it louder. Namo Amida. Say it so the ghosts and spirits can hear you. Chanting. Maybe Buddhism's last gasp, who knows? It might be a whole new resurgence. Maybe people will go, finally, that's something we can believe in. Who knows? But it's the real reality check. Rubber hits the road there. The sandal hits the tatami right there. 
So the Buddha says, all living beings are washed away by the tsunami of things you can't even see, such as desire, existence. (coughs) Excuse me. Ignorance and abuse. Let's look at that four. Those are called si bao liu in, in Chinese, the four violent rivers, the four violent floods. Um, desire is a flood because why? It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. Um, it's inside us, this desire to survive. Bas- the basic desire is not that desire one, but the second one, existence. Hanging on to life, clinging to life. Um, psychology. Freud and Jung talked about this a lot because it's so primary. The will to survive. Big. When it gets right down to it, um, we don't want to die if we're alive. And it's not easy to kill somebody. Um, in, on TV, it's just, you know, bang, bang, and somebody falls down. And then it's time for a commercial. Um, in reality, um, people, we cling to life. We really do. Um, when I was on my pilgrimage, I... I there's a saying in Buddhism, uh, How does it say? That's how it goes. If you want to really get beyond death, First, you have to be a living dead person. That's the phrase. If you want to transcend mortality, first you have to behave like somebody who's already dead and still breathing, which sounds horrifying, right? Like, who wants that? (laughs) Thanks, I've heard enough lecture tonight. I think I needed to go get a pizza uh, so that... Um, what, what does it mean, becoming a ren? I mean, how unattractive. Um, it means that when you get really serious in your cultivation, what you have to do is you work with your senses. What is a ren, a living dead person? What that means is you are right in the middle of life, Sproul Plaza. When was the last time you were on Sproul Plaza at noon? Anybody? Let me recommend it. Yeah, check it out. Go, you know, take your lunch break over at Sproul Plaza. Take a brown bag. That's, you know, Sproul Plaza, Berkeley campus. That's right there next to the, the ASUC, the Associated Students, University of California, right there in front of Sproul Hall, um, where you get the newspapers, you know, the Daily Cal right there. On, where Telegraph meets Bancroft. Right outside the door is Bancroft. You go up Bancroft to Telegraph, walk in. Go out at noon. What happens when the sun shines at noon on Sproul Plaza 
is the student's table as a verb. You go tabling, which means if you are a registered campus organization, you've got to register or they'll come, and, they'll come and remove you. But if you're a registered organization, you can put up a table and hand out any literature, buttons, badges, bumper stickers, marijuana cigarettes, anything that you want to distribute, whatever it is that you've got, your CD, you can, you know. And boy, they do. And there are so many people on Sprawl Plaza at noon that to go forward, you have to turn sideways. There's, it's too many people to walk straight. You have to kind of inch your way through. It's really fun there because there are dogs jumping in the fountain. There are musicians playing loudly. There are preachers sending you to hell, you know, and loudly. And there are people promising that they will take you to dinner. And it turns out that they want to save your soul because it's the Chinese Students for Jesus organization. And they're there to, you know, free dinner, you know. And meanwhile, we'll save you. Thank you very much. There's the band, the Bears Boosters Band. They're sending, you know, collecting for their trip to the finals in Sacramento. It's it's really wonderful. It's the most. It's my definition of activity. There's you have to if you can keep mindful and sprawl plaza at noon. You have samadhi. I used to test myself, right? Because uh, I would walk through there every day on my way to class, every day for years, and I would recite the Great Compassion Mantra. And I thought, uh, Okay, if somebody wants to get beyond mortality, first you have to be a living dead person. Here we go. You know? There's the drums. Sprawl Plaza is reverberating with the steel drums. Dunk, 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 dunk. And you just go right through. And if you can get all the way across campus without your mind being pulled in 10,000 directions and everything is interesting, then you're coming close to a living dead person. That's what it means. It means, can you be in the midst of the life of Sprawl Plaza? Tonka, 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 Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna, you're going to hell if you don't save us all. You know, ah. Please come to our dinner. <laughs> oh, my. Spare change. Spare change. And the dogs, the dogs have a great time on Sprawl Plaza, and they're all around. And and then there are actually students, a few students walking by too, you know, in the midst of all that. So you can get across campus without your senses being pulled out and drained, your eyes, your ears, your nose, your tongue, your body, your mind. You have a little bit of ren. It doesn't mean you're dead. And it doesn't mean that you are like a zombie, an insensate. You're not a piece of wood. That is not what that phrase means. It means, can you be in the midst of all that incredible activity and still not lose your focus on your next thought, your next impression, your next response? That's what it means to be a horse. And if you can do that, you get to a place where you can 
transcend mere sensation or instinct. That's what it means. So don't be too afraid of that phrase. And boy, is that phrase easy to misinterpret. Oh, those Buddhists. They just want to turn you into a zombie. No fun, right? No, Sproul Plaza is incredible. I'll never forget it as long as I live, that feeling of so much energy all concentrated there into that little area. And then you go down Telegraph Avenue, and it's another world, another universe of concentrated, chaotic energy, you know. So can you be there and yet keep your mind from jumping out into all those senses? That's what it means. So if you want to transcend birth and death, i.e. have something to say about these four floods of desire, becoming, existence, ignorance, and views, then try keeping your mind in one place when the world wants to pull you into what are called externals. Sights and sounds, smells and tastes, sensations of touch and ideas. So that's the point of that. And the Buddha is saying, mostly we don't. Mostly we just go with whatever. Mostly we just make it up as we go and figure that's, you know, what's the choice? Nobody's ever told you any different, that there's any alternative to going with the flow. Um, Or you reject all of that, which is also not the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha is not telling you to walk across Spau Plaza like a piece of wood. This is all dirty. You're all impure. Do you realize you're all outflowing? (laughs) You're a threat to my concentration. You know, it's like... Yeah, yeah. That's full of effort, and it's not what the Buddha taught. That's completely hanging on to, with strength, to rejecting sensation. And as soon as your strength is gone, it's all back. That's not the Dharma. So, he says, living beings are bumping downstream on these flows. And the imagery is like water because, like the tsunami, it's hard to resist a whirlpool. Did you see that photo? There's one of the the incredible National Geographic. If anybody is, you know, interested, it's hard to advertise disaster photos. But if anybody wants, like, a visual memory of what that uh, experience was like, Go to National Geographic, NatGeo, I think, dot com, I believe, N-A-T-G-E-O, National Geographic dot net org or com, I'm not sure, and go to um, tsunami photography. They edited down the best photos from all their photographers, and there's 20 in particular that are absolutely Unbelievable. We, if you came to our piano concert on the screen here before, uh, Mr. Um, um, our friend uh, Mr. Lee gave the talk, Mr. Wong, and uh, I put in those 20 photos. You were looking at some of them. There is one of a ship, looks like a fishing boat actually, 
in a whirlpool off the coast. Have you seen it? And the ship looks like a chip of wood. It's just this tiny little thing in this whirlpool, this gigantic mammoth whirlpool. And clearly, this fishing boat is just like a leaf on the flood, you know, and powerless to resist this huge vortex of water, like that. And you get the idea of what the Buddha is saying. The Buddha says, those invisible things in our minds, desire, the will to live, ignorance, that's to say the coverings on our nature, and our points of view, the way we see things, are like a whirlpool, they're like a tsunami, they're like a river, they're like a flood, they're like a torrent. They're like a whirlpool, and they move us. All right. So, that's the image. Snapshot that one. That's the Buddha's message. What is he saying? He's saying, pay attention to the invisible stuff in your life, because that's where the action is. Right? He's not saying... God will save you if you do good works. That's a good message. That's a religious message. That's not the Buddhist message. He's saying, pay attention to the invisible parts of your life because that's where the action is. That's the power. They wash us away. Our thoughts wash us away. And he's saying, I got out. I, my ship I, my engine was strong enough that instead of being swirled around by this vortex of water off the coast of Japan when the tsunami hit, I just went chugga, 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 and reached the calm harbor safe beyond the flow of all that water, said the Buddha. So, and he's saying, so can you. But living beings don't even know they're being Vortexed. We don't recognize it. We call it living the good life. We call it wedding dress viewing parties. Right? Oh, what kind of a dress will she wear? You know, that's good. That's all good. What kind of a dress will she wear? Meanwhile, Britain has this four-day holiday. Come Monday, it's back to work. And all of that, all the pints you drank and all the silly things you did, you know, back to work. Meanwhile, uh, we're just flowing downstream. What else? What's our next image? It says, we, it's moving away from water. That whole first part was water. He says, says, they follow after desire, hatred, harming, and don't give them up. 
In the midst of that, they're seized by the rakshashas of the view of a body. They're about to enter the forever, the forest of attachments towards what they love. They dwell in the fertile plain of pride. They settle in the town of the six places. They have no wholesome savior. They have no one to rescue them. So, um, the Bodhisattva, he's our, our narrator in our text, is a Bodhisattva whose name is um, Vajra Treasury. Treasury of adamantine. Treasury of Vajra. He is speaking with the Buddha's voice. The Buddha is not speaking the sutra. He's speaking it through the mouth of a Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva is saying... Um, from our point, of, from my point of view, as a bodhisattva, I'm looking at the photographs on my computer screen of the disaster. I'm not in the disaster. I've already stepped away from it, and I'm looking back at it and describing it. In other words, the Buddha has gone beyond this immediate crisis of heading towards the rocks, and he's. Um, able to come back and say, living beings are in danger. Let me describe it for you. That's what this is. This is bringing up the National Geographic 20 worst, best tsunami photos and describing them. The fishing boat on the whirlpool off the coast of Sendai. So he's safe, and he says, we're in danger. That's what this is about. And so we've left the water imagery, and now it's still geography. It's still talking about ground and places, right? What is it? He says, they follow after desire, hatred, and harming, and don't give them up. Three mean, nasty, evil, bad states of mind called desire, hatred, and harm. And don't give them up. Mm. <coughs> is that right? Is that, is that what we do? Um, I, I told people last week that I have been watching Ken Burns' Civil War. Ken Burns is an American documentary filmmaker. And he, one of his first, if not his first, was the Civil War. And he, it came out in nine episodes. It was aired, I think, on PBS originally. And he got the best scholarship on the the American Civil War, the war between the states. We say Civil War as if there's never been another one, right? That's our American bias because we're here in America. But there have been many, many civil wars. Spanish Civil War, the uh, uh, Civil War in North in Ireland, the Civil War in China, Taiwan, the Republicans and the Communists, and uh, there have been many civil wars. The war between the states, the North and the South, was a horrific conflict. It lasted from 1861 to 600,000 American men took part. More people died, all Americans, Southerners and Northerners, 
more people died in the American Civil War than in all the other wars combined that we've fought. Um, One third of southern men either died or wounded in the Civil War. And interestingly enough, ten times more died of disease than died of wounds. For example, you've heard of Andersonville. There was a prison camp in Georgia called Andersonville, and there were 17,000 northern prisoners in Andersonville. And this commandant, whose name was Wirtz, he's a southern, uh, what was his rank, maybe a major, he was in charge of Andersonville. And he was cruel and gave them nothing to eat than tablespoons of flour per day, uncooked raw flour, three or four tablespoons, and some bacon fat, and that was that. And of the 17,000 men imprisoned there, something like 13,000 died, mostly of disease, because they had nothing to cover their bodies at night other than digging a hole in the ground with no tools. So they would scoop out a little depression and lie there. And they showed, uh, this is when photography first came into its own, it was 1860. And uh, the men who were imprisoned, on the average, lost something like 50 pounds per person. They went in at 160 pounds and came out at 90 pounds if they survived, most didn't. And uh, Clara Barton, the founder of the the American Red Cross, um, went down to Andersonville at the end of the war to arrange for the reburial, and she found tens of thousands of men who died on the ground at Andersonville in the prison. Starved, frozen, diseased, no sanitation. They brought their water from the sewer. They had nothing else to drink. And, you know, on and on and on. Anyway, so the point is, that's hatred-causing. The men and the women, particularly the women of the South, to this day, bear ill will for Yankees. General William Tecumseh Sherman, General Sherman, said, war is hell, and He said, the way to end the war fastest is to stop the resolve of the South to fight. So Sherman determined that he was going to undermine the the men with the weapons by bringing the hell of war to their families. And so after taking the city of Atlanta... He marched to the sea, marched to the Atlantic Ocean, through Georgia, burning everything in his path. And he did. Sherman's march to the sea. It's remembered now in the South with deep abiding hatred. Because that was 150 years ago. Which is not recent memory, but pretty close. 
It's our grandparents remembered. Four to five generations. Those stories are alive. And the women were the ones who felt that because the men were all in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, West Virginia, Virginia dying in conflict and and disease. The women and the slaves were on the plantations as Sherman's army marched through, burning everything. After they reached the, the ocean of Georgia, they turned north and went through South Carolina and were more cruel than before. Anyway, just to say, that's where Yu Jue, Hui Jue, Hai Jue are born, where the desire, hatred, and harming are created that don't let go. So, there's a scene in part nine of Ken Burns' documentary, Civil War. By the way, if anybody, it's not just students of history, it's the, the result of watching that documentary is you see the face of war because they're photos and you lose all desire to go to armed conflict. Anyway, um, the, last, the last episode, there are many pictures of the survivors um, Ten years later, 30 years later, 50 years later, as they get fewer and fewer and fewer. And in 1930, is that right? It was 40? No. It was 19, maybe it was 1920. They did a reenactment of the Battle of Gettysburg, which was, the, they're, they're still doing them now, but it's the great-great-great-grandchildren. This was the actual participants who were left, went back to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which was the decisive battle of the war. That was the first major loss for the South and changed everything. Um, There were moments in the Battle of Gettysburg where within five minutes, 7,000 men died. If you can imagine, in five minutes, 7,000 people lost their lives because of the number of bullets in the air. One of those moments was Pickett's Charge. And Robert E. Lee, General Robert E. Lee, the the commander of the Southern Forces, who was a fighting general, and everyone pretty much idolizes. He is very highly thought of. General Robert E. Lee um, had the fight was going against him. He had been licked. And the Union forces were on a hilltop and arrayed up top. And between them and a large Confederate army with General George Pickett in charge were across a grassy field. And it was flat, and the the grass was waist-high, which meant it was going to be slow going. And the Yankees, the Union Army, were up high above, giving a complete clear field of fire. 
down below with cannon and muskets. They were all dug in. General Lee said, I want you to cross that field and take that hill. And General Longstreet, the the other Confederate general, said, "Uh, Sir, it would be disloyal of me to contravene your order, but sir, that would be a mistake, he said. And fighting General Robert E. Lee said, I'm not going to lose this battle. So he set his forces to charge across the field, and they were cut down like grass before the mower. The Yankees just kept firing and firing, and more died, and more died, and more died, and more died. And the ones who finally made it to Little Round Top were very few indeed, and the Confederates lost. So, I'm telling you that story because it was done so graphically by Ken Burns and so human. You see the the personalities that could do such a thing. And the reenactment happened 50, 40 years later. And he shows these old codgers with long white beards because the turn of the century was the time of beards, right? These old codgers, the ones who survived Pickett's charge and the ones who were up on the hill reenacted Pickett's charge. And as the rebels started across the grassy field, given the rebel yell, the Yankees, who were the survivors, dropped their weapons and ran down the hill and embraced them. And both sides just hugged each other and cried And their hearts broke. And it's on film. You can see it. They let go their desire, hatred, and harming and realized that they fundamentally had nothing to fight about. And it was such a turning point, a wonderful moment in this documentary, because here were the men who, 50 years ago, had gone through this hell on earth of killing each other, and now, in the reenactment, they let that go. And they show the old guys just hugging each other, and you know. So, how difficult. You go to uh, countries in Europe... Dr. Akpinar tells about stories that are well-known in the former Yugoslavia where if you bring up an injury that happened 400 years ago, people' faces turn very hard. And they remember slogans and songs and loyalties of wrongs that were done 400 years ago that are as fresh as if it happened today. How strange, the Buddha says, that we don't let it go. We don't set it down. We hang on to hurts. So what? So they continue. So the hurts go on. We get back. It's called revenge. 
revenge, we get back. And the wheel, the floods keep on rolling. In the midst of that, they're seized by the rakshashas of a view of a body. Wow, there is metaphorical language. What's a rakshasha? Everybody read along that and go, yeah, yeah, that's a rakshasha. Or did you go, what's a rakshasha? Right? Rakshashas, that's a Sanskrit word. Locha, shenjian locha. There are um, a, a variety of ghosts that the Buddha describes in the sutras. And he talks about them the way we talk about politicians, you know, the way we talk about celebrities, the way we talk about in-laws. Oh, they really exist, right, your in-laws? They're real, but kind of they just show up and give me trouble, and then they go away, you know, and we bear them. The Buddha talks about ghosts the same way. There are many kinds of ghosts, many families of ghosts, many ranks of ghosts. It's an entire fa jie, an entire dharma realm, meaning category of existence that are ghosts. And rakshashas are some of the worst, meanest. There are rakshas and there are rakshashas. The, the names sound the same and they're both considered to be mean ghosts. In the Sharangama Sutra, it says these are ghosts that eat... Um, they eat blood and flesh. These are the bad, scary ghosts of your worst imagination. These are the ones that chase you in your nightmares. Right? These are, I guess, zombies is a kind. We have that available in our culture to think what ghosts are like. Zombies. They're kind of, you know, they're after you and they're going to grab you and eat you. And vampires, vampires, are those rakshashas? Maybe. Uh, we've all seen Robert Pattison with his white sparkly skin, you know, in the Twilight films. That's vampires. You've all seen those, right? Yes, right? I'm not the only one. Don't tell me the monk is, you know. <laughs> Just keeping up with the culture, that's a, definitely a phenomenon. So these, you get a sense of, because in our culture right now, vampires and zombies are celebrated. Not Casper the Friendly Ghost, but vampires and zombies. Rakshasha's as the Buddha described them, are like that. It's a category of being that comes into being because of this hatred and voracious appetite for human flesh and blood and my life. Rakshashas will definitely kill you. They're dan qi shui, dan qi shui. They're ghosts that eat chi, they eat energy and blood and flesh. They're, the category of ghosts is so fascinating, and we haven't run into them in the sutra for a while, so we haven't talked about them. But ghosts, when they meet the Buddha, get very polite and mild and calm and respectful. And they put their palms together because the Buddha is badder than they are. They can't scare the Buddha. They can't touch him. And yet they sense this deep, deep kindness and forgiveness in the Buddha's heart. 
And many of the ghosts become cultivators, dharma protectors, because they want what the Buddha has, which is this ending of pain, understanding of suffering. The ghosts do not. It is not easy being a ghost. It's suffering. You're creating the karma that keeps you as a ghost over and over again instead of ending it, right? So rakshashas are like that. They're seized by the rakshashas of the view of a body. Meaning, what is it? The view of a body is a man-eating ghost, a woman-eating ghost. We get attached to our bodies and think these are our lives, and we give up everything to this cannibalistic perspective that my body is the real thing, and I'm having a bad hair day. And I'm really bummed out because I got a pimple on my cheek. Right? View of a body. Oh, my ensemble doesn't suit me today. View of a body. You show up at the royal wedding with a hat that makes you look like a space alien. Right? Yeah. View of a body. And everybody talks about you. So... Poor girls, you know, somebody gave them bad advice and sent them to the wedding wearing these hats. And, and they, they're thinking about it, they're embarrassed now, I'm sure. So, view of a body, it's a rakshasha. It's a ghost that eats you up, thinking that this is my reflection in the mirror really has power over me, can make my day or ruin it, how I look in the mirror. That's a view of a body. It's not ultimately... The true story. The Buddha says they seize us. Those ghosts seize us and they don't wish us well. Furthermore, these are familiar images because we've had them in the last couple reflections. They're going to enter forever the forest of attachment towards what they love. It's a forest because you lose your way. You forget that. The important issue is that we're going to die sooner or later. Probably later. But definitely this body is not our home. It's like a hotel room. This body is a car that we're temporarily driving, listening for the suspension. Right? Breaking down. Car is aging. They dwell in the fertile plain of pride. Um, what is it? It's the... Fertile plain. Pride is this flat horizon place where there's no limit to how big me can get. I can fill up heaven and earth with my sense of self-importance. That's the image the Buddha gives us. They settle in the town of the six places. What is the town of the six places? It's eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And it's a town because it's where we live. We live in our senses. Furthermore, we have no wholesome savior. E, let's see, qi da bei xin, I'm sorry, here, what do we got? It says, ah, there we go. Wu shan jiu wu neng du there's nobody who is wholesome who can save us. There is nobody who is able to do, take us out of where we are. 
as the Buddha gives us these images of living beings' reality. No one to rescue us. Um, if we just go with popular culture, we go on and on and on. Sometimes we get a little insight, hey, things are looking better, and then a week later we're back down and we think, boy, I've been losing ground. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm really going to lose those pounds. No, well, but I, it comes right back. What do I do? You know, I'm going to stop being angry at my boss. Oh, I lost that job. And what do I do now? I wish I had him back, you know. It's just always one step forward, two steps back. One step, and you get older and older. And then we make a big mistake and lose money or, or lose a friend. And then we're recovering from that. And then something else happens. It's just like that, on and on and on, never somehow getting the right compass bearing that takes us out of that confusion. So, there we go. Then we have the turnaround in this reflection. Let's take a look at his turnaround. The Buddha's resolve, the resolution. In the midst of all this, he says, Wodang yubi qi da bei xin I should have thoughts of great compassion towards them, use all my good roots to rescue and save them, so they have no calamities or disasters, so they leave defilement, find peace, and dwell on the jeweled island of omniscience. Doesn't that sound good? Take me to that jeweled island of omniscience, which means um, omniscience means where you understand everything. Yichajir, knowledge, wisdom. Um, <coughs> I should have thoughts of great compassion. I should connect myself to these living beings. And use all my good roots means take all of the stuff that I've cultivated, all the the wholesome qualities that I have, and give them to these living beings so that calamities and disasters no longer are the story, so that the tsunamis and earthquakes don't hit the land, so they leave defilement, so those beings see the right thing to do and then go do it enough, long enough so they get their whole head out of the water and they can see really where they are and that's where I want to swim. And they swim and get out of the ocean to the jeweled island of omniscience. That's the, that's the Buddha's, the Bodhisattva's rallying cry in the midst of this vision of how living beings are washing away. He says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to make a difference. I'm here to help, says the Bodhisattva. Okay, there we go. That's this, these paragraphs, these following reflections, yo, zo, shirnian, are really medicine. These are healing. Sometimes when things get really bad, when we just get into a state of blues, when we get bummed, when we get scared, bringing one of these to mind helps get you through the crisis, get you through the night. It does. Because why? 
These thoughts are unselfish thoughts that have been in the world for thousands of years. This has the power to turn the state. Because the Bodhisattva is talking about the worst things that humans do, the worst things that living beings do. And in the midst of that, there is still a reliable compass bearing. There's North is still north, south is still south, the center is still the center, it hasn't moved anywhere. It's just that we forget it from crisis to crisis, week to week, relationship to relationship. We forget it because it, it hurts, right? The ups and downs hurt. And the pain pushes us to react, and we forget where to go to find the stable, solid, enduring principles that we see when we're clearer, when we're free of those disasters and emotional ups and downs. When we remember, it's like, oh yeah, it didn't go anywhere. It's just that I went away for the time that I was confused. Thank you for pointing me back to that true direction. That's what the sutras do for us, is they give us this unmoving, solid, safe harbor. In the midst of the high winds, if we get to the harbor, we're safe. So that's how this goes. And it's, this is real medicine. So please pick out your favorite reflection that the Bodhisattva makes and make it yours. Take it home because the winds are blowing and we need reminders from crisis to crisis how to get home safe. This is home here. Um, as I was thinking about this, what, is, what are the things the Buddha points to as the problem usually? And it's two things. They, if you had to say what are, the, what are the biggest problems, it's called love and views. I, jian. Those are the two things. And you have to qualify immediately because what's wrong with love? The world celebrates love. And uh, if you don't believe it, look at the picture of Kate and William, Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge and the Duke of Cambridge. The, uh, that many people hope will become the next king and queen. Look at that picture in every newspaper in the world this morning, yesterday, right? They're up on the balcony of Buckingham Palace, and everybody's going, give us a kiss, give us a kiss, right? And so they had to do it twice to please everybody, because apparently, you know, we're still recovering from the death of William's mother, Lady Diana Spencer. So that's true. That was a huge, huge, huge horrible thing and people are still trying to heal from that one and here's her son please be happy we're all saying because if you can be happy two billion people are watching you right this minute somebody said that that couple was the most were the most famous people in the world for that moment please be happy because if you can be happy we we can still get out there and struggle for what the world tells us we're supposed to get Fall in love and stay in love forever and forever. 
come on, Jealous, it's true, please. <laughs> what are the chances? Her prince, <laughs> Queen Elizabeth's other three grandkids didn't make it. Maybe he can. Come on, William. Oh. Her other three kids didn't make it. Their, their parents' generation. So we want to believe it's going to work out happy forever and forever. Give us the kiss. That's what they wanted. So there you go. And it's our fairy story. That's our reigning paradigm. That Mr. Wright, your trophy wife, are really out there. You just have to find them. And your prince will carry you away in the carriage or helicopter in this case, uh, to your honeymoon, forever and forever. We buy it. We want it to be true. We do. The world wants, you know, why be cynical? We want somebody to be happy. So we project all our stuff on the royals. Never mind that it's the family of Windsor that has lots of troubles. It ain't so joyful being a royal. Being a king or queen and born into that family is not a happy existence. It's a lot of suffering. Anyway, we hope the best for them. May they succeed where so many others have failed. What's wrong with it? Well, if it could only be true, nothing. It's happy. People are happy. Happiness is good. Problem is it changes. It changes. It doesn't stay that way. So... The thing that the Buddha points to as the problem is love and views. The views is wrong views, thinking that money and stuff is where it's at. That's a primary view. All right. So of those views, the one that the Buddha points to a lot as wrong is greed is a view. The idea that if a little is good, more is better and the most is the best. Let's pin that down. What does it mean when it comes down to stuff? It means that we live in a finite planet. There's only so much oil. People who are more savage, maybe, than others, grab most of those resources and say, this is my oil. This oil belongs to the shareholders of Exxon. You don't believe it? Go tell them it's your oil and see what happens. Who says Exxon Mobil owns those wells? Well, they do. Don't believe it? They'll force you to believe it. Who says it's appropriate to cut down 95% of the redwoods on the planet and put them on ships to Japan to be chipped up for mulch or timbers to build decks? 5% of the redwoods that ever existed survive. 95% are gone, gone, gone. Right? People are saying... The oceans will be fished out in our lifetime. We greedily extract from the planet. 
and say it is appropriate and wise for us to just take as much as we can with no thought of sharing, no thought of caring for, no thought of keeping for our grandchildren. We don't. We extract. Sadly enough, our national leaders in the last eight years before the current leader were people who are egregiously extracting. And they continued a very strange American perspective, which is we worship rich people. And we give to rich people. We build the laws. We're a country of laws so that rich people keep what they can get and don't share. Okay, I'm not going to go into politics, but I will say that your first grade teacher taught you to share. A lesson that didn't get reinforced once you got into high school or college. At some point, that lesson, it's good to share, got forgotten, got set aside. What took over? Greed, love, and views. This is my stuff. And if I can cleverly find out a way to keep my stuff and get your stuff, I will. We call it capitalism. We call it consumerism. We call it progress. We call it the American way. And we call it globalization. We export it to the world. And every Chinese person who's wealthy thinks that it's righteous to buy a Jeep Cherokee or an Audi and put it on these roads that were designed in the Tang Dynasty. And so that's why Shanghai has a 24-hour traffic jam now. And it's not stopping. Getting worse. So there we go. The Buddha said, big problem. Greed. It's a wrong view. How come we let that go on and on and on uncorrected? Because, why? Living beings get seized by the rakshasas of view of a body and we don't wake up. So, how about us who know this message, who have a chance to put our eyes above the water, say, I'm going to remember the lesson of first grade where the teacher said, it's good to share. You should share your toys. That's true. Let's not forget that. That counters greed. And we haven't learned that one lesson, and it's going to kill us. It's killing the fish industry, killing anybody who's polluted by oil, um, the algae blooms that are showing up and killing all the sea, the, uh, the the shellfish up and down the coast. People, greed in the minds of humans. So, got it. Okay, extracting from the earth doesn't work anymore. We can't see the earth as a commodity to exploit. We have to see it as a community to share, or we will not survive. And it's probably too late. Okay, no more preaching. I'm so glad he stopped. All right. We're going to, this week, add to our booklets, because we're back we're at the end, and that's a good thing. We're actually making progress in our sutra, believe it or not. All right. We're going to transfer the merit here.
and move forward. done my own sound check. The dedication of merit is on the back side of your um, sheet that's in your suit in your sutra, that extra sheet. Certainly um, the folks who did anybody see the tornado videos on YouTube? There's uh, this collection. It's a two-minute collection of, of the tornadoes that landed through the South this week. Horrifying, terrible. You want to be? If you don't want to sleep tonight, go check the video of the tornadoes. It's uh, heaven and earth in destructive mode. Those folks lost everything, so including their lives. So let's keep them in mind as we transfer the merit. Come, come. 